1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from my fabulous friends. Hey everybody, it's Adrian, and if you're listening to this silky, silky smooth voice, you know what it is. You got yourself another episode of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. Hey y'all, welcome back me. (laughs) Welcome back self. I know that the statutory limit on wishing someone a happy new year expires, I think, January 6th. After January 6th, you're really not legally allowed to wish anyone a happy new year. However, Last time we spoke, it was before the holidays, and I said, have a great holiday season, and now it's the new year. So it is now year of our Lord 2023. (laughs) It's at the end of February. So hi, everyone. I've missed you all deeply. It's great to be back. I took the past couple months, it was, I'm so grateful that I did. It was restful. I got a time to uh, relax. I spent time with family and friends. I got a lot of time to reflect. I kind of recharged the old battery and I'm feeling good. I'm feeling really good. That said, there is kind of some good news and some bittersweet news that I wanted to share with you all. Uh, the good news being, as I said, I am back. Season four, four? Pretty sure it's season four. That said, I wanted to share kind of the bittersweet aspect of it. After a lot of thought in over the break, uh, really kind of going back and forth, I have made the decision that this year, 2023, is going to be the final season of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. There was a number of reasons for this, and I'm sure that as I go on through the year, I'm going to kind of share some of it, but time limitations, like personal kind of time limitations that... I've been experiencing um, kind of some creative fatigue, like some mental health stuff. Like these are all factors, right? And and I'd be lying if I said they weren't factors. I'd be lying to say that those in and of itself would be the make or break thing. Really, at the end of the day, after kind of sitting with it and and mulling it over and thinking about it, it kind of just felt right. My gut just kind of felt like, you know, this is the last season of the show. And if there's one thing, that the past number of years and you bad apples have really helped me see is that your intuition and your gut instinct and like that little voice that we have quieted for so long, that is incredibly important and it needs to be amplified. And so here we are. So I'm not going to let myself get overly emotional about it because as I said, we're just getting started. This is a, we have a full season ahead. The guest roster is not entirely full, maybe like half full. So if you have any guests or if you know anyone who you're like, oh, we definitely need to make sure we get this person on the show before 
uh, it rides off into the sunset, let me know. Cause I would absolutely love to do that. And I feel like I was talking to somebody and I was kind of kicking around where I was at and they said like, how did you feel the second you made the choice that Dirty Rotten Church Kids would see its last season and would wrap after this season? And I said, if I'm honest, there was kind of like a, again, bittersweet, but just this overwhelming feeling of comfort, kind of like, okay, like you just kind of know after this meal, we're all going to kind of go home kind of a thing. So that's where I'm at. That said, I have a great season. <laughs> I have a great season ahead. I've been kind of taking the past, I took the couple, uh, past couple months off, but like, if I'm being honest, I was also kind of working. I've been scheduling interviews and I've been having some interviews and conversations. We have some really cool topics lined up. And, you know, I think you're going to love it. I, I feel like it's like, um, I, I was talking about it last year, right? I just had this feeling that I was just ready for a change, which is one of the reasons why we are actively looking to move, right? My family and I are actively looking to move. All of you know the myriad of uh, parameters that I'm hoping for <laughs> in this move. In fact, actually, at the time of this episode dropping, we will have just come back from spending roughly a week in a state um, just to give it the old vibe check. At the time of recording this, we leave in like two days. So when we get back, who knows? I might love it. Or I, I might get, I'm not even going to say where I'm going because if, if I get back and I hate it, it's like a moot point telling you where I'm going. So it's that kind of intangibility. It's that thing that says like, you just kind of feel like your time within any given season is kind of approaching its end. And those of you who know me know I've never really had uh, many opportunities to land the plane well when it comes to my creative projects. It comes to a lot of my relationships and friendships. Like I just have really rarely have had the privilege of like really seeing something come to a, a, a nice close. And that's what I hope to happen here for DRCK. So I would love for you to stick around this last season. I think it's going to be great. I would love to get as much time with you all as possible and really make the most of it. And what better person to kick off this final season of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast than my friend, Brad Onishi. Brad Onishi, you probably know him from the podcast, Straight White American Jesus. He's an author of a book called Preparing for War, which released at the end of last year. And he is just one of the coolest humans. There are certain people who you talk to and you just want to sit in their conversation for as long as you can, because hearing them talk is like a warm blanket. <laughs> and, and that's what it felt like for me talking to Brett. So I'm not going to drone on because I think he has some incredible things to say. We talk about Christian nationalism, kind of where it kind of stemmed from historically. We talk about all of the ways in which extremist Christian propaganda has hijacked American politics as we know it. We talk about what's next, what's happening. Uh, we talk about his book. At the time of the recording was we recorded it back in January and it had just marked, I think the two, oh my God, two years, the two year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. I think that's right. I blocked it out of my mind. So all of those things together, right? Like this big kind of amalgamation of things. It was a great conversation. I'm so, so grateful for the chat. So I'm not going to blather on any longer. I'm going to jump into the season and jump into the conversation. Bad Apples, check it out. My conversation with Brad Onishi. 
1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. My next guest is a scholar, writer, teacher, and social commentator. He is the co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast, a show that ranks in the top 50 of politics shows on Apple podcast charts. In January 2023, he released Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, which is available everywhere. Bad Apples, let's give it up for Brad Onishi. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. <laughs> hey, buddy. Hey, man. I love, I, I always imagine that you just had the noise machine, you know, you had the effect, but now I see in real life, it's just you making the sound. So, oh yeah, it's know. just me making the sounds. I do a really good job at it. Too. Yeah. I've had a lot no, of practice. No, I saved some money that way. Sounds good. <laughs> Absolutely. You got to, got to cut corners somewhere, man. It's tough times. It's real tough times. Uh, Brad, where are you located at, man? So I'm out here in San Jose, California, which is um, Southern bit of the Bay Area. Uh, if you're on the East Coast, people often think of San Jose as the Newark, New Jersey of the Bay. But um, I will defend San Jose to the death. I think it's amazing. And um, we'll hear no slander of it. So send me the email. Got it. Got it. Well, it won't come from me. I'll tell you that much. I visited the Bay Area once with my wife back before we had kids. We were in like, uh, if you with Pinole, you know where Pinole is? Mm-hmm. Yep. We, were, we were in Pinole. I have a friend who his family owns a coffee shop out there. So we were out there, took us around to a wine country, went up to Mirror Woods. And we did the whole, we checked all the boxes, man. And it was a, truly a great time. I was there. I was like, if I could afford to live here, I would probably consider living here. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful. No, it's, we're getting some, some, some bad storms and stuff right now. But yeah, no, if you, I mean, it's expensive and it, there's a lot of things that are hard here for sure, just like everywhere. But um, yeah, no, this is, this feels like where I want to live, you know, and we may not, we may move. I don't know what will happen in life, but everything you just named, uh, wine country is two hours away. Mm. Santa Cruz is right over the hill from me. San Jose has got some of the best immigrant food and communities in the country. I could go on. Nobody wants to hear about California. Everyone hates (laughs) California and that's fine. I get it. And uh, I have no problem with that. (laughs) Well, uh, California hatred aside, Brad, it really doesn't mean so much that you'd be on the show. I had the privilege of being on your show. We had a a really, really good conversation then. And I feel like with the release of your book, like I was like, what better opportunity than to have you join this one? Congrats on the release, by the way. That's a big deal. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's um, yeah, it's, it's overwhelming, but it's, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to kind of set the stage for folks out here in podcast land, the bad apples who do not know who you are, Brad. So uh, you got to tell me, were you a church kid? And what did that look like for you in your framework? Can we talk about that a bit? You're way younger and cooler than me, but all the jokes you make about youth group are ones that like hit like way hard because I, so I converted at 14, right? And so I, I didn't grow up in a religious home. I didn't grow up going to Bible study or vacation Bible school, none of that. And I got invited, uh, classic youth group story by eighth grade girlfriend to uh to wednesday night bible study in my head i'm like look this is awesome because i'm getting in trouble a lot mom is worried about me but if i say i'm going to bible study on wednesday night dude she's 
for sure saying yes. And then when I get there, I'm going to find said girlfriend and we're going to go make out somewhere. It's going to be awesome. And then, you know, this is a good plan for every Wednesday. I met, as you can imagine, like cool leaders with tattoos and guitars and they played in punk bands and they were into MXPX and all these tooth and nail bands. And I was like, this is pretty fun. And as like an angsty kid, it really answers all my questions about the meaning of life. So I went really hard into youth group. I, I became mm. that convert who just is there every event, every beach day, every summer camp, every mission trip. By the time I was 18, I was like hired to be a part-time intern at the mega church and help out with the junior high group. And by the time I was 20, I was the full-time, one of the full-time youth pastors was married, was at Azusa Pacific, which is a Christian college out here in LA and was just about to start seminary. So uh, yeah, like youth group, golden child, like for sure, like at our wedding, there was a thousand people because it was like all the families and the youth group kids and their moms and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, there it is. Wow. Dude, you you checked all the boxes. That is a career. You are a career Christian, man. Just man, A to Z. Honestly, if uh, you were a kid who converted you, they wanted you were exactly who every single youth pastor was like, see, it worked on Brad. The recipe works. Trust the plan. You know what I mean? I, and I had a great, like I had the good testimony, you know, I had like the drug, sex and rock and roll stuff before. And then the testimony and, you know, no Christian family. Like it was just, everybody ate it up. It was just, come on. It doesn't get better. Every senior pastor's wet dream is what you were. <laughs> and I mean that in every sense, whatever, man. It's weird and gross, but it's whatever. Look at it how you will. Okay. So, so, okay. So, all right. So you became kind of this career Christian, like a professional believer. Yeah. Um, you got married within the church framework. What year was this when you were kind of like handed the reins and kind of had the ministry hat? Yeah. So 2001, I come home from my honeymoon. I, I So I finished my second year of college, right? And we get married and we go on a honeymoon and we, we come back and uh, like uh, one of the senior pastors pulls me aside. He's like, you know, so-and-so got fired or they're on leave because they we found out they were drinking beer, um, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Great. <laughs> Which is awesome. Um, and I'm still friends with that guy. I'm actually going to see him this weekend. But he got fired because he was drinking a beer once a week or something. And they were like, do you want the job or f on an interim basis? And I was like, this is my dream come true. So here I am 20. I can't even go order a beer at um, a bar. I've been married for like two weeks and now gone from part-time intern to full-time minister, still a full-time student, still a child really but um it was in charge of 200 kids so like every sunday we had 200 kids at the youth group planned all the events all the stuff dealt with all the parents everybody's calling me my kids running away from home my kids on drugs my kid doesn't love jesus you name it we had a skate park like so we had a skate park um that we did and that was with a lot of like non-christian kids and there's probably still some skate videos from like 2003 that i'm in like in the background because yeah. i'm like the yeah you know, youth pastor guy who's running the skate park and like the professional skaters rolled up and were like <laughs> going hard. And here I am. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, does anyone want to do a devotion? <laughs> so anyway, yeah, dude, that's great. Okay. Yeah. So this is around 2001. So man, first of all, I feel like I said this to you last time, Brad, when we were last time we spoke, I was like, I feel like you and I could sit down and probably talk for hours on end. First of all, because you're an incredible communicator, I said this to you on your show, and I'm saying it to you right now. Uh, I was listening to an episode of you with a mutual friend, Mason Meniga, on People's Theology. Outstanding episode, by the way. I'll drop a link in the show notes. But uh, I was listening. I was like, God damn, this guy knows how to talk. No. You're no, a good talker, no, no, man. No, 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 I don't know if there was anyone who told you that. You're a good talker. You do, you do good. 
<laughs> no, I mean, thank you. I, 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 I'm really bad at make, taking compliments. So I appreciate you saying that. But I also feel like we're in a movie where like you're John C. Riley and I'm Will Ferrell. And you're like, yes. you know, oh my gosh. Ricky Bobby, abs- you're a good talker. Yes. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> you're a good talker. <laughs> All right. So you were a pastor. Talk to me about kind of the faith change component, because yeah. certainly 2001 Onishi is not 2023. So uh, talk to me about faith change. When did that kind of happen and how did that unfold? Yeah. So 2001, if you asked me, I would have been like, you know, I'm going to be senior pastor. I'm going to be a missionary. Like maybe we'll go, my family's from Maui. Maybe we'll go back to Maui and like start a church. Uh, Maybe we'll go to the mission field. That was, that's what we told people. And my ex-wife who, who I was married to then was, and, and I'm not exaggerating here, may, is, is maybe still the most charismatic person I've ever met. Like I'm fairly good, as you say, at like public speaking or like giving a sermon. I, I'm, you know, teaching a class. She's the kind of person who walks in the room and it's like the room is now electric and she's the she's the central conductor of, of the charge. Right. Mm. So people were just like, what are they going to do? There's so much potential here. Oh, my God. It's a it's a dynamic duo. But as I got further into my education, I took I was a theology and philosophy kind of major and I just started reading and and thinking and and all of a sudden i was like you know i think i want to be like a christian college professor that sounds better i th- i think that's who i am i'm a reader and a thinker and i like that i don't think i want to move overseas or start a church and i i, I want to like be in a room thinking and I, I like to teach that's good but you know the further you go down that rabbit hole and you start reading all the theology and you realize wow like evangelicalism is like one small slice of christianity and there's all these various iterations and there's all these various approaches to everything from the Trinity to social ethics to uh, social justice to the history of the church. And so what I would do, honestly, and I know this sounds this sounds all mythical and it, it may just not sound real, but Thursdays were my day off uh, from the church and I would just go to a coffee shop. Uh, my wife taught zero period. She would leave the house like 5 a.m. So I would just go to the coffee shop 5 a.m., 6 a.m. And I would take like 15 books. And I would just stay there all day. I'd buy three, four coffees. It was then that I just was like, this is crazy. Like the story I've been told is like one one thousandth of Christianity. And I started like sort of doing that thing that everyone is familiar with. You are especially like you start asking your elders questions they don't like. You start poking at the like sermons. You start poking at the theology. You start showing up with the Greek and like, yeah, it says this and the Greek, you know, and people are starting to get threatened and they're starting to get weird, you know, and I just kept going. And it, you know, there was moments at the very end where I wasn't sure I believed in God, but I was like still leading the prayers in front of 2000 people. So, Mm. man, and I want to talk about the book and I want to spend most of the time talking about the book, but talk to me about where straight white American Jesus showed up <laughs> yeah. in this, you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to, I'm in my heart the, the when I accepted him into my heart. That's when he, <laughs> yeah, that's where he that's showed true. up. And exactly. When you were 14 <laughs> in the MXPX at the skate park. Yeah, man. So like I, I, when I, when I realized all this, my, my, my then wife and I were like, we, we need an escape plan. I wanted to keep learning. So I was like, I'm going to apply to grad school. And she was like, well, I'm a, I want to play basketball. She was a basketball player, like a, a college basketball player. So we were like, let's just move somewhere where you could play basketball and I can go to grad school. So we moved to England. She played like semi-pro ball, ball there and I went, I started going to grad school. Well, once I got there, it was like deconstruction accelerated. Um, it was, mm. you know, took five or six months and I went from pastor to not going to church at all. We decided to get divorced because we were just like out of our hometown, not ensconced in church and community. And we're like, 
I love you, but I don't think we're supposed to be married. And so it was, it was hella hard and it hurt like hell, but it was the best decision. We're still friends. We still talk. So that's 2005. And then from there, I stay like in the religion game. I get all my PhD and all this stuff in religious studies. And I really just keep sort of hovering around religion because I still am drawn to these big questions about life and existence and humanity and the human condition. If you fast forward to the Trump years, I'm like a professor in upstate New York. And I'm talking to my friend, Dan, who's also an ex-minister, Southern Baptist minister, now religious studies professor. And we're like, why don't we try a show where we tell people what it was like to live it? Because a lot of our friends are like journalists and researchers, but they never lived it. And they, they just, they don't, they don't, it's not in their body, you know? Mm. And so it's, we lived it, but we also have this like long lens, you know, from history and this weird view from sociology and political science. Like, let's give people that. And maybe you don't want to want it, but you know, we might as well just like, it'll help us talk about it. So we started doing it and uh, first interviews were Randall Balmer and Catherine Stewart and people like this. But yeah, we've been doing it for five years, been 400 episodes. We just still focus on that bifocal approach and try to help people see it from both sides. That show is so important. And I'm, I'm so stoked to hear that it has had the reach that it has. It's wild. Did you ever expect it to blow up the way it has? No. And, you know, it's, it's, hard, to, <laughs> it's hard to explain to people. And I, I don't know how you feel and, and other people feel, but yeah, everyone has this weird take on professors in this country. Like if you go to a barbecue and you tell, like, it's a total lottery, right? Like my wife's work is like, we got to go to the barbecue. And it's like, all right, let's go. And, you know, here's, here's Jeff. And you're like... What do you do? I'm like, I'm a professor. Jeff could be like, wow, bro, that's cool. I want, let's talk. I'm interested. You do a religion. And then other, some others will look at you like charlatan hmm. yeah. <laughs> or like, don't trust you. What yeah, do you, you want? Power hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Or like, you, you, what, you're better than me, um, yeah. you know, or you want to talk in French now? And it's like, no, I, I'm just at the barbecue. That's it. So what am I saying? I'm saying like, when I'm a professor in upstate New York, like I, I just teach like these classes with 10 kids in them. And nobody pays attention to me. I'm not like mm -hmm. somebody who's has a thing. So we just started with the podcast to do it. We never expected people to really, you know, find it as compelling or something as, as maybe they do. And so people are like, why do you do this? And it's like, because we want to help people. Why else would you do it? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, people like email me, other professors and stuff like, hey, how do I go viral? And it's like, I don't know. I'm not, I, I don't know. I've never gone viral, A. And B, if you want to go viral, just stop. Don't like, that's, yeah. you should be asking, how can you help people? You know what I mean? So. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it has helped people. And, and this book that you just released, I think, just continues to to do that. I wanted to take the most of the time and talk about Christian nationalism because obviously that's the concept of the book. And also I feel like you and I have kind of some shared context, I imagine. Uh, and so I would love to talk about that first, kind of like your personal experience with white Christian nationalism. What did that look like for you in your framework? Yeah, no, I, I and I would love to hear about yours too, because I, I agree. I think there's just a lot of overlap here. My dad's Japanese American from, from Hawaii. My mom's a white woman from the South. So, you know, when I joined up at the church, it was like 90% white. And I realized real quick, you're not really, it, it's not that you can't be here. Like people of color can be here. There was a couple of families that were Mexican American. There was a couple of uh, black American families. There were families that had mixed race people. Like it wasn't that you can't be part of the church. It's just don't make being a person of color a thing. Like don't, don't, <laughs> it's not, don't make it an issue. Don't try to be Japanese here. Don't try to be black here. Just try to be mm. part of the church. And as long as you do that, we're good. But if you're going to bring all that, then yeah, there's going to be ways you're going to be kind of signaled that uh, cut it out or we don't do that here. And so I learned 
as an Asian American that A, wasn't something to bring up and B, if it did come up, if for some reason race was a, an issue in the room, to make fun of it as a way to kind of get out of the situation. Like being Asian is funny or, you know, joke about Japanese people or, you know, something. And that was a way to kind of whisk it away and not have to like deal with it as something that was part of the social space. You shared a lot of this when you came on our show, but it's hard to explain these experiences to people because they're like, well, how can you be part of, you know, journalists ask me like, how can you be part of white Christian nationalism? Your dad's Japanese. And it's like, well, there's ways. There's yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. First of all, Brad, don't try and hijack my show. Okay. <laughs> How dare you? Don't interview me. Nice try, prof. Okay, it's not going to happen. Not on my watch. Not my so house. tell me about your, you know, where did you go? Yeah. Yeah, what's interesting is is because a lot of that, what you say is very similar, right? This idea of if I mock myself, you can't mock me, Yep. right? And I think if you look at uh, not the mockery piece, but the idea of congealing into a white identity, like that, that's baked into the scriptures, right? Because when when you get to heaven... There is, you know, neither going to be no male nor female. Like there's not going to be any sort of this idea yeah. of all of our identities are going to just kind of blend into really nothing. And then underlying so much of the language that we were raised up in is on earth as it is in heaven. So all that stuff doesn't just vanish, right? It, it, it maybe simmers underneath the surface, right? But that's where it's so that so much. So this idea of like, hey, man, like don't make being brown your thing. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like you can be here, but yeah. like that's not because if you do that, then it runs in direct opposition to this pre-established identity that we have kind of outlined for you and everyone who's is here. So yeah, yeah no, I, yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that. Cause I definitely, I definitely relate. Well, and it ruins it. Cause it's like, we we're glad you're here. Cause we get to tell people we're not racist and look <laughs> at this. We got diversity, but on the website, but don't, yeah. Yeah. And then, but like, don't ruin it by mm -hmm. making this a thing, mm -hmm. you know, like for sure it plays both ways. So talk to me about in this, I, I can only imagine the hours of research that you have put together for specifically for this book and also the research that you have done just over the duration of what you're doing. I would love to talk about the history of Christian nationalism. I know in your book, you kind of start mid-century. Can we kind of talk to the history of it and maybe why you chose to kind of start there? Yeah, I could have started 1619, could have started 1776. Uh, by no means does this start in the mid-20th century, but I thought that was a good place to really explain the kind of modern shape of white Christian nationalism that is just totally in our public sphere right now. Here's the main kind of beginning of the argument is in the 1960s, we have a lot of factors that lead to the extension of rights and representation to Americans who are historically marginalized. So we have a civil rights movement that everyone knows about in, in some form. The Voting Rights Act uh, really helps to put an end to Jim Crow and, and some of the issues at the voting booth, not all, in American regions in the South and other places. We also have like widespread immigration reform. And like Asian Americans will tell you, this is what led to the immigration of many folks from the Asian continent, African continent, other places. We have women's rights movements. Women are entering the workforce in mass. The birth control pill is, is becoming widely used. Uh, the feminine mystique is published in 1963. The Loving Case, which is from the Supreme Court, uh, really protects interracial marriage federally. So uh, once again, something that touches on both of our lives. We have Stonewall there in New York City in 1969. And that is part of a long lineage of queer liberation that had taken place in the 60s. So when I say those things, I think everyone's sort of, most people listening are like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. You know, that was, those were good things and work's not done, but progress. Well, for the white Christian nationalists, this is when the country is no longer great again, right? If you listen to people tell the story, they're like the sexual revolution, all of the changes to the schools and to the country. This is when we went from a city on a hill to a place that is wayward, 
and lost and overrun by idols and and other uh, sinful distractions. And so the goal in the 1960s is to take the country back. How do we do that? And uh, I can talk more about that, but that has never stopped. And if you ask me, just like to say, sum up the book in, in 10 seconds, it's from the 60s till now, the goal is to take back the country any way possible, even if that means sacrificing democracy. Because the goal is power. It's not a republic and it's, it's not piety. Wow. Taking the country back is, that is so interesting because there is this like kind of golden sheen anytime you talk to a white evangelical about kind of what the good old days were, you know, kind of like, man, there was a time when this nation was great, right? Yeah. But who, for, who, are, you, who are we talking about? Like, who's it yeah. great for? In this time frame, I kind of want to swim in the history for a little bit and then try and kind of pull it towards where we're at, where we find ourselves now, right? Like, how did this sort of, we need to take our country back, back in the 60s and 70s, like, how did that kind of make its way into what we're looking at now? Everyone hang with me. It's going to get wonky for a minute. So 1964, we have a presidential election, right? Lyndon Johnson versus Barry Goldwater. And Barry Goldwater is not supposed to be the candidate. It's supposed to be Nelson Rockefeller from New York City, the Rockefeller heir. Goldwater is this like brusque cowboy senator from Arizona. Okay. He's this guy that is a spectacle. He, he makes these bombastic claims. He says, we're going to use nuclear weapons in Vietnam. And of course, he thinks black and white people can live next to each other, but he's not going to sign any laws saying they have to, meaning wink, wink, you know, mm. racist. I'm not going to, you know, end Jim Crow and so on. But he's like hyper masculine, right? His sister says he never read a book cover to cover. So you can start to see these glimpses of the 45th president and Barry Goldwater. Well, he gets destroyed by Lyndon Johnson, destroyed. He wins only five states outside of his home state. And so you think, well, it's over. I mean, Lyndon Johnson is this Democratic president. He basically changed everything through his various legislative wins. But the heirs of, of Goldwater's campaign never forgot that loss. And they took something to heart that Goldwater said at his acceptance speech when he became the, the GOP candidate. He said, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. So what he's saying is, is if you're going to defend liberty, extremism is not a bad thing. In fact, if you want to take your country back, extremism is how you need to act. Mm. And so all the people that were in his, his campaign, the young 20-somethings, they never forgot this. And they went on to build all of the institutions that now are a core part of right-wing politics in this country. The Heritage Foundation, the Federalist Society, the Council for National Policy, all of those come from Goldwater-like foot soldiers, okay? And they realized something early on in like the early 70s. If we're going to like take back the country through extremism, we need more votes. We can't just have this kind of libertarian right-wing political arm. We need something else. And you know who that's going to be? Conservative white Christians. Mm. And so if we can link up with some really influential conservative white Christian leaders, and we can pick a couple of really key issues, such as abortion, such as foreign policy and war, such as patriotism, and surely the family, then we can mobilize tens of millions of voters. We can get them into the GOP and we can make this a kind of new religious coalition that will bring the extremism we want back. And you know what we share with those white conservative Christians? They don't like the fact that all these immigrants and all these black and brown people, that all these newcomers, that all these gay folks are now sort of in front of us and able to be represented and demanding rights and demanding equality and demanding fairness. They don't like it either. So they're going to get on board with us. We're going to take this country back. And again, happy to do more of that history, but that motto, extremism is a virtue, 
it has stuck with us for 60 years and we're still dealing with it. That's wild to me because as you're talking through it, it really does seem like a marriage of convenience, the sort of enemy of my enemy kind of thing that that's happening. And it is interesting how there's an intersection because the folks that wanted to win their country back, right? I imagine there's like the face of our country now is, is different or whatever. They had their own kind of reasons to kind of come to the table in that way. And then on the other side, there is just this whole evangelical rhetoric around God has enemies. Like God has friends and you can be one of them if you're in the Lord's army and God has enemies who he is going to conquer and ultimately devour. So it is interesting that like they seemed like they were ready, like they, the, the soil was perfect for them both to just climb in bed together, you know? Well, here's what they share, right? Is, is the story they tell. And this is something I think is really key to understanding about why Christian nationalism is it's a story. It's a story about the United States. Okay. So they share the enemy of the enemy thing is really key. They share a story that says the people who founded the country were white Christians and they were white Christian landowning men. And the country is great when the social order is in its proper place. White Christian landowning men in charge. And it doesn't mean, going back to the church thing I talked about, doesn't mean you can't be here, you know, Asian folks, black folks, brown folks. Doesn't mean you can't be here, immigrant. It just means white landowning Christian men are going to be in charge. So just know your place, play by the rules, and everything will be fine. But in the 60s, that really starts to break open and that social order is no longer in place. So the political groups that I talked about from the Goldwater campaign and the religious groups, the white evangelicals and, and many white Catholics were like, if we team up, we can get the social order back in place and then the United States will be great again. Then all of this chaos, all of this, I mean, you know, you know the words that we used to hear in church. Oh, there's so much chaos in the world. There's so much confusion. There's so much <laughs> anger. There's so much uh, disrupting traditional values. We can get all that back in order if we team up. And so, yes, it was a marriage of convenience. There's an enemy of my enemy thing. And there's also a we share a story, a broad story of the nation that we want to like put back in place. Wow. When this sort of conversation came where they're like, how do we iron out the issues that will get people coming down to the polls? Did these sort of white evangelicals care that much? Like prior to this sort of like uniting around certain fundamental issues, what was it? What did it look like prior to that? So here, (laughs) this is the really fun part. Um, So both groups, like coming back to like uh, the marriage of convenience, both groups really did not favor desegregation. Ah. So like in the 1960s, right, we have a lot of schools in this country that are being desegregated in the South because of Brown v. Board of Education, which is 1954. All of these schools are now like, hey, they have to be integrated. So what was the workaround? The workaround was create Christian schools that are part of churches, private Christian schools, and send your kid there Mm. and everyone will be white. And then you don't have to go to that integrated school and blah, blah, blah. Right. So what do the evangelicals really care about? They care about this. They care about desegregation as an attack on family values. And I, you think I'm lying or that's just hyperbole. It's, the, it's all in the book. I have all the receipts, right? What happens eventually is the government's like, look, if you're going to run Christian schools that are basically like segregation academies, we're not going to let you be tax exempt. We're going to just tax you because you can't be out here doing segregation and let us recognize you as a tax exempt uh, organization. And this is where that family values rhetoric really comes in handy because what happens is this issue gets turned into you're attacking the American church. Mm. You're attacking the American family. You're attacking 
God-fearing, America-loving patriots who just want the best for their children. Is that what you really want to do? So the family values stuff starts to really work. Get the desegregation uh, fight. And then there's this realization, family works. If we, if we have family issues, that works because people get riled up. And we see this now in school board meetings and PTA and CRT and all this, right? So then it becomes abortion. Prior to the 1970s, white evangelicals were not against abortion on the whole. In the 1960s, 90% of Texas Baptists, people in Texas who were Baptist, supported abortion in some form. Mm. The head of the Southern Baptist Convention supported abortion in some form. But there was this like realization, if we cook up a recipe where abortion is murder, and we sell it as a biblical principle that has been followed by Christians since Christ, all of those millions of votes we wanted, we can get those quickly. Because if you're a, a mom sitting in the pew, if you're a 38-year-old dad who wants this best for his kids, and you don't pay attention to politics, this will get you going. You'll go vote for this, won't you? So desegregation and abortion kick all this into gear. I'll give you one more is war. Evangelicals and the political operatives we're talking about, they loved war. Mm. They wanted a hawkish, aggressive America. Jerry Falwell held I Love America rallies, and he would have like military music. And check this out, Adrian. He would have an altar call at the end, right? Yeah. But it wasn't an altar call to like accept Jesus. Stop it was an it. altar call to save America. <laughs> so if you want to come forward tonight and commit yourself to saving America, you get down here because we're going to do that. So who's ready? Who's ready to convert tonight to be a real American? And he did this all over the country. He'd have a choir. It was wild. So segregation, abortion, war are these great uh, motivators in a very tragic way. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. I didn't know what you were going to say. I didn't know where you were going to say. I'm like, what? I'm like how, where is this going to go? Yeah, you should have told this guy he was a good talker. <laughs> yeah, Spoke yeah. too soon. No, more like, more like this is the plot twist. Like, I was literally titillated as you were speaking. So that's, that's wild to me. And I, what's funny is you say this, and I was just about to ask you, like, okay, we want to make America this great nation. But like, at what point did you... You ever watch The Office? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. okay. Come on. All right. All right. Well, some, Come you know, on. the Gen Z's, yes. they don't like The Office anymore. Whatever. It's fine. Yeah. But, uh, you know, us oldies, yeah. we like it. No. Okay. I'm the oldie. You're, <laughs> okay. you know, cool millennial. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, there's this one episode in The Office where Michael Scott is standing in front of a projector and he's like, if I just keep standing in front of this thing, they won't know which one's me and which one's them. They all know they know is turned on. So I was trying to go, like, where did it become like Christianity and America and Christianity and America and Christian? And now all of a sudden it's like, we're Christians here, right? Because um, yep. I think we talked about kind of the nationalism piece, but I, I'm really interested to know, like, how did they become so synonymous, you know, especially these days? Yeah, no, and I think if you think about the story that we're discussing here, that it's a Christian nation, what's really a kind of essential part of this is that it's not that we're trying to be good Christians, it's that what we're invested in is a country that we believe is a chosen nation that has been given a divine call, a unique place in history. So it's not that we're just trying to build a church that obeys God. We're trying to build a church in service of the most unique and special country ever to exist on this earth. So we will have I Love America rallies, right? We will have the American flag next to the Christian flag every time we go to church. Um, you know, we will think of July 4th as a Christian holiday and an American holiday. All of the, the stuff we hear about today, the war on Christmas and you hate this country, get out and all that, it really does have uh, deep antecedents in the 60s and 70s for sure. Got it. 
Yeah, I hadn't really realized the sort of American exceptionalism. It makes sense. America is so exceptional. Like it, we are just this perfectly executed experiment. Like look how we did it. The stars lined up perfectly and we're great. And how could that have happened if it were not for God, right? And so this idea of like, so clearly we're chosen and we need to protect this. There's a good way to think about that American exceptionalism, right? So there's the city on a hill motif. And some of you all out there know Matthew chapter five, verse 14, Jesus says, you'll be a city on a hill. And this is all part of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. So that's Jesus talking to his disciples. But in 1630, John Winthrop, who becomes the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, says that when we go to the new world, we will be a city on a hill. Well, that gets picked up. John Kennedy says it, everybody's favorite handsome Democratic president. And then Ronald Reagan loves this, city on a hill. Newt Gingrich loves it, right? So it gets used a lot now. But let's just like take that apart. If I say that America is a city on a hill, I'm saying whoever is in charge, the Ronald Reagan is president, John Kennedy is president, they're Jesus in the story. Mm. And I'm saying to the nation, you are akin to those who were like listening to the Messiah give his most important sermon while on earth. <laughs> okay. That is what you are, American. And so when it comes to other people groups and their values, their ways of life, their food, their traditions, their holidays, you are the city on a hill. You know, this country used to be a city on a hill, but you know what happened? And I'm going to give a sermon now. Mm. What happened is some people got up in the city that weren't supposed to be there. Yep. And, you know, sometimes when you have a city on a hill, too many people want to get in and you have to build a wall. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's part of God's plan, because if you're going to be a city on a hill and you're going to shine to the rest of the world, you got to make sure you can keep your streets clean. And you don't want people who, you know, are disturbing the peace, causing confusion, leading the youth astray. So building a wall, that's biblical. A really strong anti-immigration stance, biblical. Not wanting new people to come here and like replace white folks, biblical, because it's a city on a hill and you're a chosen people. So yes, you serve God. And yes, it is a call to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to the whole world, but it's really a call to this really one divine country. We should all just be glad we get to sit in it, right? Wow. Wow. Yeah. This idea of separateness in the world, but not of it chosen it really. And it's again, I, I, as you're talking, I'm like, there is so much of this Christian exceptionalism baked in the language of the scriptures. And so yeah. it lends itself to this idea. And if you're looking at the historicity of the text, right, it was these Jewish people who were like persecuted, preserving their identity and their traditions. And like that was probably really accurate for them because it was a survival conversation, right? So it is interesting that now all of a sudden it's like, it's not just survival, baby. We're thriving. Like we're going to, we're going to rule it all. Yeah. It's domination. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so I want to talk, and, and you mentioned the, the wall thing. I think that lends itself really well. So how did we go from, we need American values. We need family, right? We want, I want a Jesus fish on my shit. How do we go from there, right? To, you know, the, the first orange president. Like, how did we go from there to Donald Trump? You know, what was the, the domino effect there? I talked about Ronald Reagan and there was this. So let's just do one more piece of history uh, just for all the kids out there who, you know, having a hard time sleeping. Tonight. So, so 1976, we got Jimmy Carter in the White House. All right. So most of y'all don't remember Jimmy Carter, but Jimmy Carter's like built in a lab to be a great white Christian president. He's like built in a lab for this, right? Because he is born in rural Georgia. He's a Southern Baptist from the day he's born. His family is devout Southern Baptist. He is a peanut farmer. He becomes an, a military officer. 
He marries his high school sweetheart. He literally has only held hands with one woman in his whole life. They're still alive. It's been like 75 years they've been together. And when his daddy dies, he goes home to the farm and takes over. This guy is like a machine. He's like a cyborg of like <laughs> amazing white Christian manness. You know what I'm saying? And he becomes president in 1976. And by 1979, all the people I've been talking about, those political operatives, those Christian leaders, the Jerry Falwells, the Tim LaHaye's, the Pat Robertson's, the Ralph Reed's, those folks, they're doing everything they can to oppose Jimmy Carter because he put way too many women and people of color on the federal bench. Mm. He's not into war. He's into diplomacy and negotiation. He's not totally into like persecuting gay people. He won't be totally anti-abortion. Sorry. So who do they go for? They go for the divorced Hollywood actor whose kids really didn't like him, who did support abortion in some way as governor of California, and whose wife, Nancy, eventually had an astrologist follow her in the White House, and that was Ronald Reagan. So here's the thing. 40 years ago, they chose power over piety. There was no more pious man than Jimmy Carter. The man like leaves the house with a Bible, and who did they vote for? Ronald Reagan rarely went to church. He rarely understood anything related to evangelicalism. So here's the point. That's to me when you can see it's about power. It's not about identity. Now, if you fast forward, and these are years people remember, there's another guy that's supposed to be a Christian president who's going to be Reagan, but also be like a real Christian. That's George W. Bush. Hmm. He was an alcoholic and God saved him. He says, Jesus changed my heart. And I, I don't know about you, and I don't know if you were too young for this, but there was a lot of people in my midst when George W. Bush ran for president that were like, it's going to be awesome to have a real Christian in the White House. It's going to change everything. Mm -hmm. This country is going to get back to it. Yeah. And I really think by the time we got to end of like his two terms, a lot of folks were like, it just didn't scratch the itch. You know, I was, you ever like wake up at night and you're like, I'm going to get a midnight snack. And you really think eating that quesadilla that's been in the fridge for three days, you think you're like, that's going to do oh, it. I'm going to feel better. <laughs> and you don't, you don't feel better. Nope. It's just right. And I think at that point they were like, you know, the people who, you know, that enemy of an enemy thing, I, my enemies aren't really hurting as much as I'd like. And mm. the social order is still not back to what it should be like it was in the 1950s. And then they elected a Barack Obama. And here we go. We got a mixed race guy with a Muslim dad, an immigrant dad, a black wife, black kids. Jeremiah Wright is his pastor. He grew up in Hawaii. Is Hawaii even a state? Do they use American money right, there? Right. I don't know. Okay. And it's like, we went from George W. Bush, didn't really scratch the itch, to like our worst nightmare. Mm. And then gay marriage is legal? And wait, Black Lives Matter now? Black Lives Matter, right? Trayvon Martin. Right. Okay. And you get to this point where in 2016, it's like, I'm not going to have an I Love America rally. I'm not going to just try to get out and vote. I'm not going to just encourage kids to like save themselves for marriage. I don't want to just think that America is going to return because it's not. You know what I need? I need somebody who is not really uh, a pastor. I need somebody who's going to like brutalize the people that I think are ruining things. I want someone that will go out to the playground, like my colleague Sam Perry says, and beat the shit out of the people that I think need to get out of here. Mm. I want people who need to be punished to be punished. And I want to like see it. That's going to scratch the itch. That is going to make me feel like I have my America back again. And it's almost better he's not a Christian because if it was Mike Pence or Ted Cruz or Mike Huckabee, they'd be so worried about being pious that they wouldn't get out there and just destroy people. And that's what I want. I want the Muslims and the gays, and I want all of those activists and all of those people who aren't religious and don't go to church. I want them to know their place in America. And this guy, he'll put him in that place. So let's go. He's our man. Wow. It, it is so interesting 
that it's like this sort of God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And so it's kind of like, you know, God can use anybody. God can, you you know, who are we, you know? And so I think there is, and, and I'm speaking from experience because so much of my faith change and, or my deconstruction, like it happened completely in line chronologically with this whole turning of events where you see people who were very much Jesus, especially us reformed guys, right? Everything's about Jesus. Don't worry about drinking beer because it's all about Jesus. Don't worry about tattoos because it's about Jesus. Like all that matters is Jesus with a capital J, right? And so then when all of a sudden this whole theology, which is baked around the person and work and life of Jesus, start like really kind of kissing the ground that Donald Trump walks on, we're like, are we talking about the same Jesus we were just talking about like a week ago in that like eight week sermon series about Titus or whatever? So <laughs> so yeah, shout out to Titus. I'm my man. Shout my out to Titus. Um, <laughs> so it is so interesting that it it became this sort of the ends justifies the means. And again, I'm doing this to try and pinpoint how this can very naturally go so awry. Is if you look at so many of the sermons we were taught, we're like, look at David. He was a an adulterer, not a rapist, by the way. He was never a rapist. Got you know. Let the you know the yeah. company line is he was he was an adulterer. Yeah. Look at Paul; he was a tax collector. Look, at, there there is so much of this like God can take the broken and use it for His purposes, and if He can do that with them, He can do that with you, right? And so it's a natural extension for that to go. Yeah, Donald Trump's like a little rough around the edges. Sure, like he's made some mistakes. Who hasn't? Sure, he's got some locker room talk. Sure, he's but look what he's going to do. Right. And it's very interesting how it justified just so much behavior. And now, right at the time of recording this, we are just outside of the two year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. So I feel like this is actually a very timely conversation, how this whole thing kind of unraveled. And and your book kind of starts that way, right? You kind of Tarantino it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that what you're saying is really a big part of why so many folks over the last five or six years have found their way out of churches. Because, you know, at some point, you just have to say to yourself, like, any encouragement for us to put on the virtues of God and the, the godly character it just seems such like trite language when you all are, as you say, so invested in this man who does none of that. And so if I go back to history, like, you know, the Reagan example is one where he's not necessarily an evangelical and he's really not a lifelong churchgoer, but he's really good with those audiences at making them feel like he gets them and he wants to like play the game. Like he 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 walks into that room full of evangelical ministers or he walks into the the church and he know he's an actor he knows his audience he knows what character to play he knows what language to use right mm. Donald Trump doesn't do any of that he just he walks in and he just he's always this nar- raging narcissist power hungry person that he's been his whole life and at some point folks like you are just like I'm not I'm not doing this this doesn't make any sense there is no making this coherent it it, it does not add up and I'm mm-hmm. done mm-hmm. I I'm, if this is who you are I'm out I loved what you said when you had a conversation with Mason. You talked about the January 6th insurrection and how the events that transpired were such a vivid depiction of the ideologies in practice. Can you talk about some of that? Because I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So for me, January 6th is in many ways a Christian nationalist event. I think there's reasons that it's so. So if you look at the, the footage from those days, if you, if you uh, and I've done this with other professors, you know, we've cataloged all this stuff. 
you have so many displays of Christian religiosity. You have symbols, you have Bible signs, you have Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president, all of it. You also have a lot of praying. There is so much praying at J6. There are so many prayer circles. There are so many worship, impromptu worship sessions with guitars. There are people with shofars, blowing horns, all that stuff. There's flags everywhere. This is why Christian nationalism is a story, as I've been talking about today. Because Christian nationalism says, this is a country that is exceptional. It's chosen by God. And we have to take it back by any means possible. Even that means extremism. And the election was stolen. So we have to go steal it back. That's what we're going to do. But if you are various groups within that MAGA cosmos, if you're the three percenter, the oath keeper, the proud boy, if you're the Pentecostal Christian, if you're the, the, the person who just got caught up in the crowd, if all of the various strands and threads that are present there, you can all unite under a story that says, we are the founders of the country chosen by God here to set it back on its right course. Sure, I haven't been to church in three years and I can't quote scripture. But yeah, I'm going to pray with this pastor. And that pastor is saying that we're thanking God for bringing us to his house, sending us as his warriors, and we are going to do his will today. Great. So yeah, I haven't been to church in three years, but now I'm part of a story and everyone's part of the same story. And that story has divine justification. I'm not a trespasser. I'm not a treasonous actor. I'm a divinely sent warrior. I'm a patriot. So Christian nationalism is really a religious ritual in that sense. You feel as if you're living out a story. You know, many of us are familiar. I know you are and, and those listening familiar with Jericho. I don't know, you know, story of Jericho. I don't know about you, but I'm a youth pastor. I mean, I'm going to oh, Jericho. Yeah, that's easy. That's low hanging. That's easy picking. <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm looking forward to that. I don't have to teach some story about, you know, uh, somebody uh, getting stabbed by bears or a fat king getting stabbed. I'm good. Jericho's easy. I can teach a 16-year-old Jericho in my sleep. This is, this is great, right? So you teach Jericho and it's like, yeah, they believed God. They walked around the city and the walls fell down. It's awesome. That's what you should do. Believe God. Don't worry about what the world says about you. Trust in him. They're going to think you're crazy, but it's all good. And then that kid raises his hand and he's like, hey, but like when they went in there, they like killed everyone, you know, like men and women and children and animals and shit. Is that what God <laughs> wanted? And you're like, well, A, I wish you hadn't read that part, but B, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes things get messy and people don't obey God and things happen. And right, Adrian, what happens from November, December, all the way to January 5th? Jericho marches. Mm. There are Jericho marches in swing state capitals and there's Jericho marches in D.C., and if you ask people about it, they're like, yeah, I'm here to pray that God will make the walls fall down and there is a miracle. And you're like, yeah, yes. <laughs> but if we put you right. in a story, meh, are you, are you uh -huh, not praying uh -huh. that maybe the walls fall right. down and you get in there and kill everybody? Because that's right. the story. That's the one you've chosen. So should we talk about that? And, you know, that is a little bit of, of what was attempted. So anyway, that's, that's to me why the, the religious dimensions of J6 are so important to, to see and to discuss. Absolutely. I want to go to, and, and, and obviously I want people to read this book. So I, want, I don't want you to hit it point for point everything in the book. I, I'm sure that's not what's happening right now. But right in the title, you talk about what comes next. And if we're talking about extremism and we're talking about kind of like some scary bells ringing right now you know like i've seen this part of the movie like there's just a little bit of a tremor underneath all the instrumentation there's some scary shit about to happen right uh like i've, I've seen midsummer so like what happens next or what should we be preparing for i think there's a couple of ways to talk about this right i think in in some ways like the 2022 midterms were not nearly as bad as people thought and some of the candidates that were really like buying into the big lie and election deniers they didn't win 
And I think that's good. I think people came out to vote for democracy. I think a lot of people voted for reproductive rights and uh, in the wake of the Dobbs decision. So all of that, I think, is, is really a sigh of relief. But I will also say that we live in a time when if you notice the little fires everywhere, they start to kind of appear all over the map of this country. So in North Carolina, about a month ago, somebody destroyed a power grid because they didn't want drag queen story hour to happen. So they were just like, I'll just destroy the power grid. I don't care if everyone doesn't have power. Let's just do it. Domestic terrorism. I'm in. You know, people are showing up to brunch with AR-15s so that gay folks can't eat. There are threats, right, to librarians. Lifelong librarians are quitting because they're being told that they're groomers for having books in the library on LGBTQ characters mm. and so on. Teachers are being told that they're pedophiles because they are willing to discuss uh, sex and gender in class in ways that are related to, I don't know, you know, literature or history and so on. You have people sitting outside of drop boxes in Arizona with AR-15s, uh, just making sure, you know, quote unquote, that nothing fishy is happening. There's a lot of those little stories that pop up. In Coeur d'Alene this summer, Idaho, Patriot Front, a white nationalist organization, was seconds away from a massacre. 30 of uh, or so of them showed up and were armed and ready to basically propagate a, a violent set of actions against everyone who was at the Pride event. These things are all around us. So here's, here's my take, is that in some sense, we have not had another January 6th in two years. In another sense, uh, after writing this book and studying all this stuff, and I think you would agree, I'm curious on your take, but living in these churches, it's not the kind of movement that's like, you know, didn't have such a good showing in the 2020 midterms. I guess we should probably give up. I don't know. Maybe take up tennis. Uh, I've been hearing pickleball is popular. I don't know. This uh, this whole politics thing, What? who needs it? Not that kind of movement. I, I don't think the 2020 midterm disappointment is like going to thwart plans A, B, C, D, and E of a group that's been trying to retake the country for 60 years. So uh, Ron DeSantis won his election mightily in New York. There was a GOP takeover in congressional seats. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates. they're all still part of our Congress. There are MAGA takeovers of school boards all over the country, including my home district in Southern California. What comes next, I think, is a continued fight. It's a continued test of protecting American democracy, multiracial, multiethnic, pluralistic democracy against what is in essence creeping authoritarianism and, and proto-fascism. And so I think that's what's at stake. Brad, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're coming up on the hour. I, I try and land the plane with questions like these. I think especially, <laughs> maybe this could use a, a little bit of levity because man, this is some scary. This is like some heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. Uh, <laughs> no way. Yes. Oh man, I'm gonna, I need to go to bed after this, Brad. So thank you. <laughs> It is bedtime for me, man. So thank you. Uh, I need, I need so, to, I don't know. I am such good yeah, company. Really good. People love. Yeah. Hey, if you're having a party, email me. I will come and it'll be a, it'll be a blast. I, I love it. So, no, no, yeah. I, I love it. On, on this side of your faith change, right? You talked about yeah. coming up in church, a lot of stories you have in common. There was something within that evangelical story. There was something that brought you, I don't know, some sense of, Happiness, identity, joy, security, whatever it was, right? On this side of things for you, Brad, what have you found? What do you participate in? What do you do, consume? What do you do these days that perhaps is maybe scratching the same itch that your evangelicalism did once upon a time? All right. You asked the question. I'm going to give you my answer. So when I convert at age 14, right, I'm, I'm a pretty angsty kid, depressed. I go outside a lot, stare at the stars. What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Is there any reason you know, to live? Uh, what does it mean to be a good person? Do bad people ever get punished? That kind of stuff. And so when I enter the church, I find really quick and certain and absolute answers to all of those questions. 
And when you're an adolescent, when you're 15, 16, 17, it's really satisfying and it's really helpful because you have this like unshakable set of responses to any existential threat that comes upon you. You also have a community of people that will do it with you. They'll pray with you. They'll hang out with you. They'll invite you to Bible study, youth group, bonfire night, whatever. Okay. What eventually happened for me, and I think a lot of us, is, is not only the politics we've talked about today, but those like adolescent answers, those very reductive binary answers to the most fundamental questions of being alive, no longer is sufficient. You're like, it, it, it's just so much more complicated than that. As I get older, the world is gray. The world is full of nuance and complexity and, and really just hard issues that are just not easy to like reduce to this or that, us or them, here or there. And so now when, I, when people ask me like, well, what... What is it that is joyful about, you know, being human? And, and for me, it's all of that. It's all those things that you're told as an evangelical that are scary and disruptive and frightening, the complexity, the not knowing, the uncertainty. To me, that is a huge part of the, the beauty of the human condition. So if we think about what it means to be human, you show up in this world and you didn't choose to be here. You just popped out and you, you came here. You're like naked and crying. You not know where you came from. I mean, that's embarrassing. You know, like if I show up somewhere, Adrian, <laughs> naked and crying, and I don't know how I got there, like you probably had a pretty good party yeah. and because and things got yep. weird, yeah. right? That's embarrassing <laughs> to like just wake up naked and like crying and like, I have no idea how I got here. That's not a good night. That's scary. It's dangerous. It's a lot of stuff. So you showed up on earth that way. Mm. Dude, it's embarrassing just to be human because you showed up here and you didn't even want to be here. And here you are and you got to deal with it. And unlike a lot of other creatures on this planet, you're like acutely aware of yourself and other people. And you're even acutely aware of the fact that you're going to die someday. You're mortal. And that opens up this space that you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? That awareness opens up this space that you're like, how do I ever solve or resolve that? Like it's, it's a really painful condition to have. And evangelicalism and a lot of other ideologies and religions, they, they offer to, to solve it. They offer to fill the space and just say, no more. But I think for me, as I think about it, I always just want to resist filling that space. Because I want to think I'm a creature that showed up here with no choice and I got to leave here with no choice. And the thing that's closest to me, the thing that like structures every moment of my day, every second of my existence is the fact that I'm temporal and mortal. It's why I do everything I do in the way I, I, I do it, because I'm not going to live forever. And yet that thing, that death that I think about and I know is coming at some point, is something I'll never experience because I won't be here as soon as it happens. And I'll never know it because I won't be here when it happens. So the thing that's like most intimate to me is the furthest thing from me. And the thing that structures who I am is the thing I'll actually never know or understand. And that's just like a crazy, crazy hard condition to have. So you're telling me I'm like embarrassing myself by showing up here naked and crying, not knowing how I got here. And the thing that structures everything about me is like a thing I'll never know or understand. So to be a human being is to like have this irresolvable condition and it can feel like a curse. It can feel like Genesis three is like a curse, man. It's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's hard. Temporality is hard. Mortality is hard. But I think, you know, that space that I'm talking about, that's the space where you got to see the beauty and the joy that can come in that space. Because every time that we laugh, every time that we write, every time that we recite a poem, every time we sing a song together, Every time we cook and eat and break bread, and I'm not just saying put food in our mouth, but we actually put intention into eating the food of our ancestors and sharing it with other people. Every time we pass on a ritual to our kids, every time we wake up with somebody who uh, we've just somehow felt a sense of love and reciprocity 
every time you sit down next to someone on a park bench and you just share some experience that just goes right to your soul, like every time you you just laugh and sing and celebrate in ways that go further down than you hurt, well, you overcome that curse and you enter into the absolute wonder of being human. And it's not a condition you can solve, but it is one you can celebrate. And, you know, if we don't do that, what else are we going to do here? Man, you're, you're a good man, Brad Onishi. No, no, I, no, no. I, uh, I don't really know how to. Charlie Brown did say Charlie Brown, but I was going to date myself. I, I don't No, I am so appreciative of you. I, I don't think you know just how much I appreciate you and the work that you do. That was lovely. And, and thank you for that. I'm going to be sitting on that for a while. Brad, where can folks find you, support you, participate in the work you're doing and, and interact with you? Yeah, so we're at uh, Straight White JC on Twitter, and I'm at Bradley Onishi. You can find us on Instagram, too. We do our show, Straight White American Jesus, three times a week, so come hang out. We have a lot of, I think, cool things happening over there. Be talking about my book all over the country, so uh, if you're in Philly or San Francisco or Seattle, um, check out our link tree because we, we have um, places I'm going to be showing up, and if you want to come hang and talk about uh, like all this fun, like you, if you have a party <laughs> and you want to invite me. Yeah, man. And just like have a hell of a good time. Then just, you know, a couple of Diet Cokes and things get real crazy with me. So yeah, just let me know. Naked and crying. Let's do it. (laughs) This is great. Brad, thank you for your time. I appreciate you so much. This has been a blast. Come back anytime, okay? Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me. (sighs) How's that? Great talk. At the end of the interview, I was talking to him and I asked him, you know, the question like, what have you found on the other side of your evangelicalism? And as he was talking, I was like cr- crying. <laughs> you, you can't see it. I, I actually am going to start doing this thing where um, as much as possible, I'm going to start posting the entire video interview on the Patreon this year, um, just for the last season. And if you look, you can like see me really sitting with the things he was saying. And I was like, really try not to cry. And the question I asked him, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was kind of expecting to be like, I like to surf. <laughs> I, I like to surf, Adrian. That's, that's what I do. That reminds me of church. But he really said something that was much lovelier than I ever would have expected. And it was something that I have been sitting with a lot. So I'm so grateful for him. I'm glad we had kind of the opportunity to talk. I admire him so much. So Brad, if you're listening to this, I admire you as a human being. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Thank you for this time. Uh, this has just been an absolute an absolute blast. Well, that's it, folks. I feel like it's time to kind of seamlessly slide into the last portion of the evening. I say we do it. I say we jump right in. And this, you know it, I know it, is what we like to call Sip, Smoke, Read. Sip, smoke, sip, smoke, read. So you know we read that shit. That shit. Only sip the finest party lit. On my couch and I'm here. So you're thinking, listen to these idiots. But here you keep on listening. So listen, major pain corner to the latest book. Browse over, watch a show, just take a look. Probably cartoons. They call me little fishy for my hooks. Now you gotta sip, smoke, sip, smoke, pee. <sighs> All right. It's been a while. It's been a minute. I feel like if I really lean in, it's going to go on forever. I'm not going to go on forever. I'm going to tell you the things that I have been partaking in, right? Sip, smoke, read is a section where I talk about what am I drinking? What am I smoking? What am I reading? What am I listening to? What am I thinking about? What am I doing with my life and my body to get through these nuts times here? 
2023? First things first, let's talk about what I've watched. So I watched a movie called Knives Out Glass Onion. It was great. I love a, a whodunit. I loved Clue. I loved Private Eyes. I loved the original Knives Out. There, there was another movie that came out that I watched immediately after called See How They Run, which is another sort of whodunit. Admittedly, I should not have watched Knives Out, Glass Onion, and See How They Run back to back because then I kind of have a preference between the two and I don't want to sway you either way. I kind of like Knives Out more, but they're both good in their own ways, okay? So yeah, so I love a whodunit. Another movie I, I watched was Ford v. Ferrari. Um, and this is with Christian Bale and Matt Damon. Those of you who know, I am still a Formula One drive to survive. I'm a fanboy. It's the only sport that I participate actively or I really care about Like <laughs> to this exact point. Literally, the Super Bowl was yesterday. At the time of recording this, the Super Bowl was last night. I realized I did not even mention it at all. I completely bypassed the Super Bowl, which is like the single uh, most famous uh, American sporting event of all time. I, I didn't watch it. It was late in the day. I didn't even get a chance to stick around to watch Rihanna's performance. I Sometimes I, I at least try and stay around till the halftime show and then I call it quits. Didn't watch it. If you're a football fan, do you, man. Good for you, y'all. But it's it's not it's not my jam. But what is my jam is Formula One. So I've been really enjoying Formula One. And I am a, I'm a Ferrari fan. Uh, Charles Leclerc is my boy. And so this movie, Ford v. Ferrari, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like it, but I kind of like racing and I'm kind of, I find it interesting. So let's check it out. And when I tell you it's a good movie, it's, it's a really good movie. It was, I really enjoyed it. I thought the acting was great. The storytelling was great. The cars are sexy. I'm not a car person. You actually, like, oh man, this engine is, I don't know anything about cars, but I know the cars are sexy. There's the vibes were immaculate. So if you're into like historical racing drama, check out Ford v. Ferrari. Great movie. And then the last thing that we have been watching and we just concluded last night was an HBO show called His Dark Materials. If you're not familiar with His Dark Materials, perhaps you've heard of the film The Golden Compass. The Golden Compass, I never watched like the OG movie. It had like Nicole Kidman in it. It had Daniel Craig in it. It had an amazing cast. They released one movie. The trailer was hype. I thought it was going to be kind of like a Narnia thing. And then I didn't watch it because everyone at my church said I'm not allowed to watch it. Everyone's like, oh, you cannot watch The Golden Compass because it is atheist propaganda. It is, it is the, the, the devil version of Narnia, right? So I, I guess what? I didn't watch it. I just didn't watch it. Then when I heard his dark materials, it didn't put two and two together until my friend Chris and Lizette were like, you should watch it. It's really, really good. And we didn't have a show. So we said, fine, let's try it. Literally the first couple lines of the show, I was like, this sounds like the golden compass. And Alyssa looks at me. She's like, it is the golden compass, you idiot. And she didn't say that. I said that in my mind to myself. Yeah, so if you like uh, this sort of Narnia energy, but you would like to see some storytelling that is highly critical of organized religion, as I uh, historically am and have been, you might like it. We finished it. Uh, there's three seasons. It's three seasons and done. I think each season mirrors a book loosely. I thought it was pretty good. My friends like loved it, like obsessed over it. Like my friend Lizette says she was just like 
crying in the club, like at the end of it. Um, I wasn't crying in the club, but I think it's a fun show. I think it's worth the watch. Watch the first season. That's what I would suggest. If you don't like it, then don't follow through. But if you do like it, stick around. I think it's pretty good. What else? What else? Okay. There's two drinks that I have participated in. <laughs> participated in. I don't really drink as much these days, y'all. One of the things is called a Pisco Sour, which is like a Peruvian brandy. Like Pisco is like a Peruvian brandy. And my friend uh, made them for us. And it was absolutely delicious. I don't really know what other instances where I would go for that spirit, but it was outstanding as a sour. I made a elderflower Mexican 75. Uh, and, and the reason why it's titled a Mexican 75, I guess, is tequila. A French 75, for those of you who don't know, is gin, simple syrup, and lemon. The Mexican 75, I guess, is that it uses tequila and lime as the components instead. And then I used an elderflower liqueur with it, and it was chef's kiss. I love an elderflower anything, really. You know, I love an elderflower tonic. I love an elderflower anything. So if you're into, oh, and, and, and Prosecco, sorry. I forgot the, the, the biggest component of a French 75 and a Mexican 75, respectively, is the Prosecco. So that also was really, really good. That's what I was drinking. Another thing that I've uh, recently gotten into. So those of you who know, I have really started, I started doing martial arts about six months ago. And it was like something I wanted to do as kind of an embodiment practice. And so I was doing a martial art called Krav Maga and it was really good for me from an embodiment standpoint. That said, I have recently picked up another martial art as well. I'm just like collecting martial. I'm just trying out different things. I'm just Listen, I'm just, I just want to taste every pie in the display. You know what I'm saying? I just want to go to the diner and just try every pie in the display. So the martial art that I have recently started taking, and I've only been doing it for about a month, is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, it has been pretty eye-opening, and it has been a very embodying experience. And I mean that in like the fullest sense of the word. And like, I have not rolled around, done like a, a somersault, like a a backwards somersault on the floor in years. I am 33 right now, turning 34 in a month. I have not like lain on the floor and like rolled around. I felt like I was like pretending to, like, I felt like I was a kid again, pretending to be a chimpanzee or something. So it has been like a, a, an incredibly fun and very humbling experience. Um, I feel like when I was doing Krav Maga, I can like, do like a punch and a kick and I can just like pretend to be someone who knows how to punch and kick. You know, I've watched movies. I've seen John Wick. I can, you can like kind of pretend to be good at something. You, you really cannot pretend in jujitsu. So I, if there's one thing that I have like been really kind of coming to this realization, which that has been really good for me and my growth and my healing has not been like a, I think everyone should like work out, but I think everyone should find something that embodies them. And maybe it's working out, right? Maybe it's something like martial arts. Maybe it's like ice skating. My friends picked up ice skating, like started are taking private ice skating lessons. And they're like, it is one of the most embodied or like, like longboarding. We got Wilder a little skateboard and I borrowed my buddy Chris's longboard. I don't know how to fucking longboard, but it is an example of an embodying experience. Or maybe if like that isn't your thing, do a body scan or meditate or I don't know, like, like crochet or there, there are a million, there's so many different things that like pull you 
out of like this like sort of hamster wheel of thinking and overthinking and thinking and overthinking and pressure and anxiety, at least for me, and putting yourself into something where it's like you have to enter a sort of flow state and you're using your body in a way that feels good to you. I cannot recommend that enough. And I feel like that has been one of the biggest things that I have gained in the past really six months. Like the past six months has, I feel like a, not a new person, but I feel like there was like, I'm like rediscovering versions of Adrian that I just haven't really interacted with in in so many years. And so, um, yeah, I, I am not someone who is prescriptive in any way. This is entirely descriptive, so I won't tell you what to do. But if I can tell you what has been really wonderful to me, it has been trying a bunch of different things that I feel like could possibly give me an embodied experience for any length of time. And it can be physically exerting, but it doesn't have to be. And it can be something you pay for, but it doesn't have to be. But yeah, I would just recommend that for everyone. Uh, And if you want to do jujitsu, you can do that too. I think that's, it's been a lot of fun. So that is that. Everyone, this has been the first episode of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. You can visit dirtyrottenchurchkids.com for the Twitter, the Instagram, the TikTok, the Patreon, and the Teespring. If you join the Patreon this year, it's going to be access to the Bad Apple Only Discord. And then I'm going to start releasing video content of the full conversations. They're going to be like kind of unedited. I'm not going to lie. So if you're expecting like a really cool, highly edited show, it's not that. (laughs) It's literally just going to be like when I record these conversations with my guests, my engineer and producer Del Breezy pulls the audio, but like the video is there and sometimes it's laggy. Sometimes it's perfect. Sometimes it's awkward, but usually it's a ton of fun. So I'm planning on just like pushing that over to the Patreon. So everyone, it's good to be back. I missed you all. And I am really looking forward to what this year has in store. If you want to send me an email, you can send me an email at dirtyrottenck at gmail.com. And uh, I think that's all I have to say about that. Thanks again to Brad Onishi. You're a rock star and a wonderful human being. Everyone, thank you for listening to this episode of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. Keep up the dirty work, everyone. And remember, it's all going to be okay. A big, huge shout out to Brad for guesting on the first episode of the year. It is great to be back. And I am so excited for the episodes and guests lined up for this final season of the dirty work. I believe in communism. Wrong. Communism. That is, if Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan can go through some heartfelt struggles and still end up happy, then so can we. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.